0: Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Community Possibilities. I am so excited to bring you today's interview. I am speaking with Dr. David Betterman, President and CEO of Betterman & Associates, an international evaluation consulting firm. David has worked in over 17 countries, including South Africa, india he's been all over the world he's worked with native american reservations as well as high-tech firms in silicon valley like google and hewlett-packard he's currently facilitating a USAID sponsored empowerment evaluation in india focusing on eliminating tuberculosis and as most of you who know me Uh, who know me well anyway, know I lost a friend to TB, so that's uh, near and dear to my heart. He's also providing evaluation consultation services to Feeding America, one of the largest network of food banks in America. He spent 25 years at Stanford University. He's currently a faculty member at Pacifica Graduate Institute and Claremont University, He has won numerous, numerous awards and is the author of 17 books. And oh, by the way, he is the founder of Empowerment Evaluation. Now, community possibilities is not for evaluators, although evaluators are welcome. And those who love evaluators or evaluation, we really talk about how empowerment evaluation can be used to empower community members to really change their communities in a way that they feel is best for them. We had the most fabulous conversation. Make sure you listen to the end because when I asked him what community possibilities do you see, he gave a really uh, profound answer. So I really enjoyed this conversation. I freely admit I went a little fangirl. He is one of the nicest people on the planet and oh, so wise. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Community Possibilities. I am so excited to have Dr. David Fetterman uh, with us today. Um, I got to tell you, I'm a little bit of fangirl right now. I'm kind of nervous. I woke up in the middle of the night excited to talk to you today. Um, I read your work in graduate school, so there you go. Um, So I'm really excited. I don't know if you remember this or not, but we actually have met in person before. We've met on Zoom. Uh, We were part of uh, someone's dissertation data collection, and we were part of that focus group together. But we have met in person, and I know you meet lots of people, so you probably don't remember it. And for the life of me, I can't remember which AEA meeting, but it was at the bar. Anybody who's been to an American Evaluation Association meeting knows, not that we're all heavy drinkers, I'm not saying that, but we do tend (laughs) to hang in the bar.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Now, I remember, here's this weird thing. I memorize faces. So I I can sometimes mess up with names and stuff like that. But once I've seen a person, like I see you, it stays lodged in there. It's a very interesting, weird phenomenon. I'm not sure what to do with it in life, but uh, I I do remember (laughs)
0: Well, I am so glad you said yes. I'm so excited to talk to you. So um, I want you to start, uh, for those of uh, the audience who may not be familiar with your work or you, to just give yourself, uh, give an introduction to yourself. And I always tell people, you know, don't tell me your vita, don't tell me your resume, tell me how you got to be you.
1: Sounds good. Well, let me give you the uh, the very brief, boring one, which is just a simple, linear one, Uh, so people know I'm, I'm president of my own company, it's an international valuation company, and uh, got my PhD at Stanford, all that sort of thing, in medical and educational anthropology. Uh, I got two masters, two bachelors, uh, I was kind of an overachiever. Uh, about 17 or 18 books now. The Stanford for 25 years, also American Institute of Research, Claremont, Pacifica, you name it, a lot of honors. One of them I got in Times Square, I have a picture of uh, last, is it last year? Um, it was mostly as a top one of the top anthropologists um, uh, in, in the last decade. Uh, that was cool because I brought my family with me. So we have a picture of me. And then on the kiosk, it says, you know, my award and my picture. That, that was pretty cool. Now let me tell you the interesting background. That's just the boring kind of like, you know, general resume thing. The one that makes believe that you crafted your whole life and you you followed every step and you it's just perfectly, you know, in you know, a linear folks. And of course, no one lives that way. Um, mine was an interesting kind of um, uh, way to sort of navigate to where I am now. I, I started, um, I'll give you three examples, basically, to introduce myself, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, first one is that I want to emphasize how numbers, it's going to sound very interesting, different than for folks who know me, numbers had an influence on me at a very early age, but not in the way you might think. I was sitting in the synagogue, and during high holy days and stuff like that, and I noticed that one of the women uh, next to us had uh, tattoos, tattoo of a number, not like tattoos in design. So I asked my dad about it and she was a Holocaust survivor. So I grew up in a synagogue uh, in a community that took in Holocaust survivors as a way to reestablish and adapt and uh, become sort of in the norm again. Uh, So that's one way in which sort of I got introduced to symbolism social context the meaning of numbers uh, from a social uh, justice perspective so that the reason I mentioned that is that David Williams interviewed me some years ago and when he did a very interesting thing he interviewed like a ton of evaluators and people involved in social change and community uh, work and he wasn't interested in the you know awards and all the you know degrees what was your childhood like and at first I thought, well, that's, you know, kind of a strange thing to do. And then I read all of them and I think, wow, that tells you a lot about who they are now. There's no question. So for those that want to read about that, it's in David Williams, uh, new Directions stuff, but it was very interesting. And it's, I think it is an important thing to talk about your, your childhood. If you want to know why a professional has gone into what they've gone into a second one, and I just mentioned three, don't worry. to sort of shape who I am and, you know, how I came to be uh, where I am at this point. Um, I got, when I was a grad student, uh, an opportunity to join a research corporation, RMC Research Corporation. And I've been involved and in, in hired by many research corporations over the years, but that was the first one. And um, my, my mentor, George Spindler, wanted to know, would you like to be involved in working with them? Because they're going to be working on a program with dropouts and stuff like that. And you've done that kind of inner city work before. And you, know, you can maybe look at it from an ethnographic perspective. And I said, yeah, this sounds cool. <laughs> so I got there. And the president is one of he's was like six something, crew cut, always wore this like ox kind of suit every day. Very, and he was a psychometrician, so we would argue in the lunch uh, room of the conference room, um, and he'd be at one end of the table, I'd be at the other end, and he would yell at me that you know. At one point, we were kind of yelling each other. These are professionals, right? Uh, that you know, David, you don't have any reliability. What you see, you see sin as an ethnographer, and you know. Uh, and I said, well, I may have the same reliability because life doesn't repeat itself constantly. Uh, however, it does periodically and you see patterns, but at least I have validity, which is something you don't have. Well, everyone thought I'm going to be fired and, you know, I'm the president and we go. Uh, anyway, bottom line is he started seeing some of my work where we work with dropouts and we have these, these always happen, as you know, too. You know, you have a contract, they call in the middle and they're going to cancel or do something crazy instead of waiting for the data to come in, they were saying, David, we're gonna have to, you know, close down these schools for dropouts because the attendance is 60% or 70 sometimes, and that's just lower than the normal attendance in that uh, in the inner cities you work in. So I had to think about and go back and forth and, you know, look at my notes and go, I called back, it was the Department of Labor, Department of Education that were funding it, and I said, hold on a second. Uh, my understanding of what's going on here is that the baseline is zero. These are the kids that dropped out. So the fact that they're attending 60% is fantastic. That's the kind of thing I would argue about and find in this process that then made the president respect the approach of a more qualitative, ethnographic kind of approach. Same thing happened with math scores where I was getting a little cocky uh, because he said, "David, I, I, you know, I'm sure he checked with everyone else before checking with me, but he said, David, I need to ask you." Do you have any explanation for why the math scores were really great? And then between January and March, they were terrible. So I go back to my notes again see what my place do a lot of observation and then make notes and then bring them back to the office and that sort of thing. And I figure it out. And I sort of swagger into his office. He had the main office in the corner with all the windows and stuff. And I'm a, I'm a grad student, right? I'm just still getting my PhD. I'm walking in and I go, I think I, I think I kind of know what the answer is. It's, you know, after a lot of it, David, just say it. Uh, I analyzed the records and uh, there was, according to my records, no math teachers between January and March. It's that simple. Sometimes it's just that simple. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of observation and was physically they to see and recorded it, that later it made sense. It could make sense to the numbers and of the attendance anyway. I could go on, but you get the idea. Basically in that phase of my life, I learned to contextualize numbers uh, and to, to be able to meaningfully interpret them. Um, and once again, from a social justice perspective, keeping these schools alive, if they merited it. Anyway, um, the last thing I'll mention is um, I got in a lot of trouble uh, at the, when I was make, I'm making a transfer and I was partially at Stanford in as a faculty and, and also at the research corporation, I got into a lot of trouble because I argued against the um, uh, randomized uh, controls, treatment control design in a national evaluation. And that, if you remember, is when they basically were trying to legislate um, RCTs as part of the way in which you have to do evaluation and research uh, for national projects. Well, bottom line is, uh, I was involved in a national um, uh, experiment of that nature. And what I found is when you think about the whole approach of, say, putting dropouts, into a treatment control design, what you're really doing is saying, okay, all you kids have passed the test to be in the school, but I'm going to take half of you and I'm going to go, sorry, you don't get into school and I'll give you any option or anything like that. So automatically there's an ethical issue, right? But methodologically, it's not double blind. They know who didn't get in and who got in. So that's going to shape it called reactivity, how they're going to respond if you want to test them later. Similarly, The kids that got in, it's not the blind. They know they got in. So you're basically messing up the process. And on top of that, not just methodologically, one of the moms, when I interviewed her, said this is like slapping my kid in the face.
2: Mm.
1: Basically, kids are trying to come back into society, giving society another chance. We think we're giving them another chance. They're giving society another chance, and we're slapping them in the face. Anyway, I I wrote an article about it, uh, titled something like Ibsen's Baths. Um, It's a misapplication of the treatment control, design, and national evaluation. Get this. um, My boss, the president uh, of the company, stuck behind me and wanted me to write that because he thought methodologically what we're doing in the country was wrong. He could have lost a lot of money because that's contracts that he could have lost because I was arguing, and this is in educational research and all these other national uh, uh, top uh, journals and stuff. He stuck behind me and it actually shifted things as far as people realizing that may not be the gold standard. may not be the right way to go over time. Now we've returned back to the same argument. So it, doesn't, it hasn't ended by a long shot. But my point is, these are three examples, just to give you a sort of a, a more uh, kind of a gestalt of sort of how I came to be who I am, mm-hmm. rather than, you know, just the PhD, a bunch of masters, a bunch of, you know, bachelors, which is, you know, that tells me, tells you something about me. But this is more, I think, key events that happened in my life that kind of help you understand sort of why I aim towards a lot of my work to be something that's community-oriented, for communities to take charge, uh, to respect that they know what they understand, and the only way to have sustainability is to have them more in control and taking charge of their life. I think those kind of things have shaped sort of uh, who I am, uh, and, and it's sort of a long-winded response to your question. But I think it gives folks listening a better feel for who I am rather than just a standard kind of linear uh, resume approach.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: No, no, I, I love that. I, I mean we can't randomly assign people to social problems when you're, when, you're, when you're doing dealing with complex social issues, community things, things that are very uh, you know, just uh, sticky. <laughs> Right, really complex things. We can't randomly assign someone to uh, be in foster care or to be a a teen mother or to live in poverty. I mean, we that it's just not even it's just not even possible. So I I heard you talk about um, a pull towards social justice, uh, a pull towards uh, context and complexity. Is that the beginning of what became empowerment evaluation. And I know we don't have necessarily an evaluation audience. And I was so glad to hear you talk about context because uh, so oftentimes people in communities, they hear the word evaluator. It's like, oh my God, I got to go to the dentist, right? (laughs) Uh, Here comes the evaluator who is like judging me. So I'm really glad uh, you put that human side. But anyway, getting back to my question. So is that where you know, you yeah. you be the beginnings of empowerment evaluation. Maybe you could talk about that. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, let, me, let me tell you, it's, it was an interesting journey. Um, I I was involved in the Accelerated School Project with Hank Lavin, which is a national reform movement to get parents more in control of the schools and their kids' future, uh, teachers more involved, um, administrators, uh, people from the community in general. Taking more uh, control of the schools and, and the kids the kids' uh, education, uh, I was at the same time doing something for the u s Department of Education. I work in the area with kids with disabilities as well and you know, you know all sorts of physical disabilities in particular um, retinosis, pigmentosis for example uh, uh, I was working with a, a kid that was a um uh, parap- uh, paraplegic and um, a number of other studies all at the same time. And and they were that one in particular was one I remember where we were focusing on kids with serious disabilities that were very self-determined. I mean, let me tell you just briefly what happened in one of the stories that I, when I interviewed her, and this will help you sort of get a feel for how I pulled empowerment evaluation together. She was, and this is something we do in the United States, which is horrendous and it's other countries as well. Just because someone has a physical disability, we often, they have a cognitive disability. So she was put in a lower level class in her math and that sort of thing. And hated it, hated it. But she would meet the other kids in the gifted and talented class and group uh, during recess uh, and lunch, you know, and break on the playground and stuff like that. And then wheel herself back, you know, uh, to a regular class. But she was so mad at one time, she decided, I'm just gonna sneak in and follow the kids in the gifted class. And stayed there, and they were afraid to kick her out. And sure enough, she was gifted as far as you know cognitive capacity and stuff like that. Anyway, those are the kind of stories I was collecting of self-determination with kids with disabilities. I was working the accelerated school projects. I was doing my ethnographic work, and then so one night I just it sort of all came together. All these projects I was working on, I wrote it down, and in the morning it still made sense. So I thought, okay. oh my gosh, I must have something here. So I put it out there. I did a lot of my initial work actually in South Africa. They invited me to come after apartheid. I wouldn't come before, and uh, they ran with it. They were doing, we were doing wonderful stuff in townships and uh, uh, um, uh, squatter settlements. It was like phenomenal. Uh, You know, for them, it was like, this is like fantastic. I brought it back to the United States. As you know, that was my presidential address for the association, the American Evaluation Association. And I had basically... Half the folks hated it, hated it, like stuff will be in mother they thought, I'm giving evaluation away. And then the other half were like, why didn't you come up with this earlier? This is like phenomenal. So it was sort of a a blend of the things I was engaged in. They all came together at the same time in my mind. Uh, And that's, uh, and I'd already been by the way, uh, director of a poverty agency. So I had a lot of work work in my social justice and community uh, kind of uh, advocacy activities that all of it sort of gelled. And I realized what we're doing in evaluation isn't really quite right. And that's exactly what you were talking about. We tend to sort of have a reputation for, we're gonna get you, we're gonna blame you, we're gonna point the finger. And I think I learned a lot from the folks in South Africa that I, I was, They we talked about, should we change the name, should it not be evaluation, you know, empowerment evaluation. And they said, David, don't let anyone hijack it from you. You are on the right track. You just have to reclaim what it's supposed to really mean, which is to help people, not mm-hmm. to hurt them. So that's sort of a, once again, uh, yeah, I wish it was a linear, I studied this, I did this, and I did this, but it was more of, it came together of all the things I was engaged in at the same time. I must say, when I introduced it to the field, pure luck and timing, because if I had done it like 10 or 15 years before that, it would have gone nowhere. I think people were sick and tired of having it done to them, evaluation. So the timing was perfect to say, no, it's time for you to take charge and be in charge of your own destiny. Using evaluation as a tool for social change and social justice. And I will act as a coach and facilitator to help you move it forward. So that, that's sort of how it all came together. Um, it's to sort of, uh, I, I'd like to say it was all planned and perfect, but I, it was sort of, but it's more kind of a, there's a serendipity. And my, my friend uh, Crumbos, uh he's an um, educational psychologist. He came up with this thing called uh, planned you know serendipity. And that is basically that you work hard, you, know, you do all the things you're supposed to do, right schools, right kind of occupations, right kind of this, that, and the other thing. Um, and then it gets you into a zone of people and activities and that's where the serendipity is. You don't know how it's gonna all connect, but you know you're in the right place to have things start moving in the new and hopefully progressive direction. So I think that characterizes more about where I got. I mean, I I I must say I am very goal-oriented, as you probably know, and very focused, but so I have to let go of being too control oriented. It's almost like the opposite approach of my personality in some respects, because I like to like to get things one, two, three, four, but I learned how to take detours and let go a lot more.
0: Right, yeah, and you absolutely have to do that when you work and in communities, and, and you answered my, one of my question, which is, what was the reaction in the field? Because if you think about where our field, we're both evaluators, so if you think about where our field is now, it's all about community work and uh, participatory methods and uh, listening to voice and evaluation um, uh, alongside but not not doing to people, but doing um, with people or even stepping back and 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 being, you know, let me know when you need me kind of thing, and I'm here for you. Uh, you've got this. Um, that's very, very different than it has been in the past. I mean, in some ways, I wonder sometimes if we're not going through an identity crisis as a field, we're trying to figure <laughs> out who we really are. Um, so I don't know, that was a really rambling kind of reaction i that could not have been a lot of fun, but I seem to hear a theme with you about getting in trouble.
1: <laughs> good, good trouble. Good trouble. That, I, that just could not
0: have been a lot of fun to have half of the professional uh, organization wrong. that you were president of say yeah. you're full of it wrong. crap.
1: It, it was, yeah, it was personal. It was personal. It was not like a normal, if people look back at the scholarly debates, they might think it's going oh, to be boring. Once you read them. This was not boring. This is not, it was, It was not an attack on the approach, which is, you know, for folks who are not familiar with it, it's really empowerment evaluation. It's the use of, you know, evaluation concepts, techniques, and findings to foster improvement and self-determination. It increases, I want to just make sure everyone has the definition. Yes. It increases the probability that programs will achieve the results, uh, increase the capacity of program stakeholders to plan, implement, blah, blah, blah. So I want to throw that in there so folks who are not familiar with it is basically evaluation normal evaluation, but upside down. So for folks who are not familiar with it, I should mention that basically, you do a lot of the same things, it's just that they're in charge instead of you're in charge, and you're the coach and facilitator. And it was awful. When I introduced it, I thought it was the most obvious, simple thing. It looked like a little missing piece of the field where, where people were doing it, but not systematically. And of course, I, I would just help clean it up a little bit. And instead, it blew up into this like international, literally worldwide event. And some of the scholars at the time, uh, absolutely, uh, if you read the literature, were David Fetterman is going to destroy blah, blah, blah. Not the approach, not the concept. It was very personal. Um, At one point, we even had editors who had to step in and say that we couldn't have these kind of ad hominem comments and uh, remarks in the journals uh, because people were getting uh, outrageous. It was sort of like an uh, uh, older version of what we see has sort of just recently in Valve talk, where people are getting. And that's, a, um, you know, for folks not familiar with that, it's just an online list sort of thing of evaluators chatting. Uh, and people got really personal, to say the least. That's what it was like in the literature. The benefit is you can actually go back and read it and see just how nasty people were. Uh, now, the benefit of that is that I then got to respond to some of the biggest people in the field at the time also, who also were not ad hominem remarks, but they hated it, like Scriven, et cetera. And to this day, he always says, now I hope we're still friends <laughs> after <laughs> each of our debates. Um, and he, and we just live in different worlds. He believes you can't get too close to people because you get contaminated. I believe you can't do an evaluation unless you are close to people and talk to them, like most people who do community work. And so you have, you know, of course, you have to be engaged working with people and respect their knowledge and their information. Uh, and you can't go for without that kind of relationship. So on every level, we differ uh, in terms of the idea of giving a permanent evaluation and giving evaluation away for folks to do in the community. He thinks that's outrageous. You know, it'll be subjective and uh, not objective enough. And the reality is they want what's broken in their communities to work. So they're going to be more critical than we are because they have Mm -hmm. to live it. And no one in their right mind who has a dysfunctional job situation year after year after year is interested in saying, oh, how great everything is. No, this is their window of opportunity to say, it's broken, let's fix it when we have some ideas. And if they're not perfect, we're gonna monitor it. And if it's not, we'll come up with new strategies, but the same goal. So a lot, cause a lot of my work just briefly is, you know, I have like a three-step approach, you know, help them come up with a mission, help them come up with, you know, take stock where they are and then plan for the future. I never say that's a logic model. I don't use the language. That's just embedded in all that sort of thing. Sometimes when I have uh, my dots where they're red over here and green over there, I don't say cluster analysis, but you can see it where the problem is or where things are going well. So I try to get away from the jargon, but use everything we know and built it into the process and the steps of doing an empowerment evaluation. Right. So anyway, I I love
0: that because I try not, I try very hard when I'm in communities to, I mean, you know, not say the word uh, statistical significance or power analysis or Logic models. I can see them breaking out, you know, like in yeah. sweat. You can see the anxiety um, because, you know, we we get into our jargon. It, I, I don't know if it just makes us feel like we're an expert or it was worth all of that money that PhD cost me, or, <laughs> uh, but I try really hard to speak in really accessible terms, which is exactly what you're talking about. So even your three step processes is just so simple. I mean, I can feel myself relaxed. So I can imagine if I'm a community member, and I don't know all of these yeah. things that this funder is wanting me to do just by the way you describe this three step process is just so I get that I can understand that that makes sense yeah. to me.
1: Yeah, I think that's why it got to be this worldwide thing. It's we're all 17 countries, uh, different languages. And the thing is, it's simple. That's why and it works. It's not, you know, it, a lot of stuff went into thinking about it to simplify it. You know, it's like, like Mark Twain's thing, you know, where uh, for a speech they were going to give him um, five hundred dollars. I mean, it's just a tremendous amount of money. And then uh, he said, um, "Oh, sorry, you cut to only like twenty minutes." He says uh, that's an outrageous amount of money, and double. It's like, well, it's much harder to make something shorter and simpler. That's sort of thing. A lot more work. That kind of concept. So I think uh, what's nice about this is every, and by the way, we talked about it briefly earlier. Not only can you do you have to do face to face, which is a great way to do it, where you're helping them in a, in a very sort of uh, hopefully large scale group. I, I work in large scale group groups uh, with people from every level uh, the, in the group engaged in it. You can do it online. I've been using Zoom and Google Sheets to be able to do this in my work with India, where we're trying to eliminate tuberculosis. And same thing, I'm working with Feeding America right now, one of the largest food bank you know, networks in the country. And we're doing all of our facilitation, our empowerment evaluation online, just using Zoom and Google Sheets. And they're actually able to do what they think their mission is, and write it down there, taking stock. They actually put all their activities on one column, and I have them a vote on it. You know, Everybody gets very California-esque, everybody gets five dots, they put their dots or their marks wherever they think are the most important things for us to evaluate. You know, I, I know it's california yes, but, but seriously, it only takes about two, three minutes instead of five hours to do it that way. Right. And you've prioritized what are the most important things to do. And then I use Google Sheets again to them, rate one to 10. How well are we doing? They write a nine, a two, whatever it may be. It totals it automatically. So I can see the average. And then I can ask people, LR, you gave that a three. Why did you give a three? Using Zoom? right now, like we're doing now, as well as um, uh, the, the Google Sheets to have the record of it. Anyway, bottom line is, and then same thing for plans of the future. What do you want to do? What's your goal? Well, it should be related to what you just evaluated. And then what are your strategies? The strategies should be tied to the evidence you just gave. I mean, I asked you for a three, because that's where the most strategic plans fail, by the way, yes. I read thousands of them a year. People have me review stuff and they're phenomenal, but they don't go anywhere because they're not rooted in a self-assessment and right. that self-assessment is not rooted in the mission. That gives the intellectual coherence and then it really is sustainable. And then we wow. help them monitor when we're getting there. So yeah,
0: that's my biggest beast with strategic plans is some of them look beautiful. Some of them are way too detailed, but you know, I've seen some really good ones, but very few of them have any kind of measurement, right? So I right. wonder if they're just like that logic model that we developed, but we never looked at again.
1: Exactly. It was it, we do all these things that are like great exercises, but but they're not rooted in a self-assessment. There's no sense of ownership. There's no sense of, you know, and if you don't have that, you're not gonna have people to follow through on it. The whole, I mean, the theory, you know, the theoretical theoretical concept that you know I usually talk about when you talk about empowerment evaluation for those who are interested in that part of it is process use. Process use is the more that people engage in their own self-assessment, the more likely to buy into the findings. And the, and the recommendations, because they're theirs. The more we can help them have a sense of ownership for this, the more likely they're going to pursue it. We're going to be gone. We're going to do our project and evaluation, and, you know, and, then, and we can try to do a little bit more, but the reality is we have other things and we have to make a living, et cetera. This allows them to have something that they can use forever in one form or another. Mm-hmm. And, and, we've, and I've done that with other communities where I've gone back and seen that they're still using it, sometimes even without funding, because it's such, like you just said, a simple process. It's three steps, there's not, there's not a whole lot. So that's why people are willing to engage in it and give it a shot and then they find it works in all different contexts.
0: So did you, I'm curious, did you stumble on this three uh, step process for me, um, my shower thoughts, I have, I call them shower thoughts, like my creative things happen when I'm washing my hair. So where did these, where did that three step process come from? Or was, I mean, was it your experience? Or was it, I'm trying to like... um, uh, re- reduce people's like fear or of evaluation. So how do I do that? I'm just curious, why three steps? I know you talk about Abe Wandersman has 10 steps, but you have three, right. so have that, where did that come from?
1: I found, yeah, I found, well, I found ten, 10 was useful for me when you get to the taking stock part and you go on a one to 10 scale, how well are you doing? 10's great, one's terrible. The reason I like the one to 10 for that part of it uh, which is because if you go to a ho- I, I work at a lot of hospitals. Um, and um, if you come out of anesthesia, um, they'll often ask you on a one to 10 scale. Uh, when you go to school, one to a hundred, what's it, an A is, you know, a hundred, et cetera. Uh, so many different contexts that's, that it's used, whether it's 10, 20, 30, 40, whatever, one to 10, it's so common that I knew that'd be a range that is wide enough. I don't like these Likert scales that are too small. I'm forced to do yes, I like it, or I know I don't. Give me some breath, and then I have a range to see where you are. That's why that I like that one. The three-step part of it, um, I think, is uh, I had difficulties when it got too complicated for me to then explain it to anyone. So I had to use something simple so I'd be comfortable, and never mind anyone else. But you know what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm gonna try to remember what a five is or a seven or like, a, I don't know. You know, tw- twenty steps is like forget it. You know, I'm not gonna remember that. <laughs> so I, I think for myself, I just kept it simple. You know, all I know is we have to start somewhere. So what's our mission? What are we doing? We have to take stock of where, where we are, right? And then I'm not done. In normal evaluation, you're done, but in empowerment, you want to do something. Step three, plan for the future. So I think for me, I just, you know. I like think I came from a small town. I'm a very straightforward kind of guy. I think I just needed it as simple.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. I love it. So we want we want to empower communities um, to uh, you know think about what they want to take stock, do some assessment. Is there anything communities or nonprofits can't do?
1: I think that my feeling is um, is really. Very little that they can't do. I think um, the most important thing that they have to do, or they, or they, I guess that that they can't do, I should say, is that they can't give up. They Mm. can't give up when the odds are overwhelming politically, as we already know in the recent past. Economically, um, it's so easy to be overwhelmed with the personal nature of the problems that we all encounter when we work in communities um, is easy to shut down. So I think the the only thing I can think of really that they can't do is to give up. Mm. You have to constantly have faith in people and hope that if you think of it like developmentally, adolescents, we have a big problem with adolescents and suicide, right? And the reason often is because they can't see the second day, the next day, um, they have no sense of perspective that, you know, next week it might be 100% turned around. It might not, but if you give it a little bit more time, you might see that things good and I see that in a lot of the communities I work with. Very often they call me in not because things are great, it's because things are a total mess. Uh, I'm, I'm really called in to be purely preventative and It's usually a a disaster going on. And so, you know, please, can you help me, et cetera. Um, And too often in those situations, too many very good people have gotten either psychologically paralyzed by uh, being mistreated. uh, And that could be by a funder. That could be by uh, police force. It could be by all these different folks that you normally think are going to be supportive and helpful and often are, uh, but they are let down by groups that they trust, and then they lose by not pursuing their dreams and the dreams of their community. So I think that's the only thing I believe that they can't do is to don't give in. Um, I remember a guy, this is a long time ago, uh, that is just an, an organizational thing where they were going to try to fire him and stuff. And he said to me, David, the one thing uh, that he said he's learned over the years, and he was much older than me at the time, is that don't let anyone push you out, especially if you don't deserve it. You go off on your own time. I mean, to the extent that that's possible, right? Uh, because people can knock you out. But I think the same concept applies um, in community work. Um, There are so many things, and we all know this, that can go wrong and do go wrong, that you can't get demoralized by the scale of the problem, the fact that people don't always follow through. That's life. I get that all the time. People don't follow through. So we'll go back and do it again, but maybe pair it up with somebody else who I know is going to be a little bit more conscientious. You know, you have to work with the people you've got. So I think there are very few things we've, we've, I think we've created a society that has siloed and compartmentalized all of our activities so much that we don't think we're capable. And we, are, people in the communities are capable of doing tremendous, do they need help? Yes, of course. Do they need support? Yes, of course. Guidance, coaching? Of course. I mean, I, I got into this big argument with Spreville one time, because I even, you know, as you know, uh, having a, being a coach and a critical friend at helping people uh, do this, not just living by themselves. And he said, David, you know, kind of basically grow up, and you have, when you get out there, you have to operate on your own. Uh, you can't um, just depend on having someone else to, you know, coach you all. So I went home and I thought, wait a minute, my daughter has a coach for volleyball. Um, and I had her, she was jumping with horses at the time, you know, pole vault and stuff. And I thought, oh well, my gosh, she definitely has a coach for that. And then, you know, financial advisor is a coach. And I, th- I started thinking through all this stuff. I go, we all have coaches. And you think I'm going to let any of my students in med school go do an operation? We coach them. We, we teach them, right? Right. So I went back and said, no, that's nonsense. We should we we have coaches and we, we just sometimes they are implicit and we should have them. Why not in the field of evaluation as well? Um, and I believe the same thing, community work in general is that, no, I'm not saying, you know, just go off and do it all by yourself. And, you know, uh, I trust you to do everything perfectly. No, they need assistance in all these different areas. Evaluation just one. Um, and uh, with that kind of support, they have to also, this is going to sound strange, be um, re-socialized because I think that we're all messed up. Let me explain really briefly. A value tend to think that they need to be in control and they're in charge because they're so smart and they've been trained and they are. I mean, it is a difficult and complex uh, skill or task, et cetera. But we have to learn to let go and not be as in control and in charge. Often in community work, Folks will go, oh, I love this, David, this is great. Empowerment, you know, I love taking charge. I should have a long time ago. Three to six months go by and, you know, budget hits and they've got this crisis of crunch and the supervisor wants to do this and this. David, would you do it? You're the expert. I said, no, no, we will do it. And then the third party is the donors. We tend to think, oh, well, just leave the money here and get out of here. I don't want to see you anymore. We're missing the boat. These are the people we should mind because they're investing in all these different activities. How things are going for these things, that's where the real gem is, not with the money per se. So I think we should all, and they need to stay instead of just dropping the money and going and then pulling the rug out from under you at the end to say, wait a minute, I asked you to do this and you didn't. And wait a minute, if you stayed, you would have seen how we have to adapt and evolve. Things are not what we thought. I and mean, if you were part of that, you would have seen we need to really not hold to exactly the very beginning idea of what was necessary, et cetera. My point is I think we all need to be re-socialized. We've been all socialized in the wrong way and we've compartmentalized our activities so much that we think that we will only be able to do this and we can't do evaluation in addition to our community work. No, that should be mainstreamed as part of your community work. That is part of the It's not secondary, it's not parasitic and I know the perception of it. It is intimately involved in you determining the future of your community program and your organization. So I think my feeling is that this that's why I think there's a lot of work ahead of us is that uh, we've made a lot of inroads and I think we've made tremendous changes. I've seen them, like we talked about methodologically. When I started, I was really kind of an end of one. I mean, it was, there's no qualitative, quantitative. There's was quantitative and that was it. They wouldn't even respect any qualitative. Now you always see a balance of the combination. Same thing before, we would never think about the idea of listening sufficiently to some uh, person in the community. Now we are learning to be more participatory, more collaborative. That was not in existence. So, the same way I've seen all that change, I know that we will change and improve for the future. Uh, but we all in the community, folks, not just evaluators, have to have a little more faith, but persistence and hard work to get there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, my least favorite thing to hear from a, a client is, well, you're the expert. Oh, I, yes. I just cringe when I hear that, because that yes. kind of tells me that um, I need you to tell me what to do. I Maybe I'm afraid of the answer, or um, I don't want to take responsibility for this right. decision. Okay. So I just need you to just tell me what to do. Uh, I exactly. hate that. I hate that so much because I always say I have expertise. I do. Um, but yeah. you're the expert in this community. I am not. And when i when exactly. I'm gonna go back home and you have to live here,
1: exactly. Yeah. exactly. And the thing is, we inadvertently foster dependency by letting them assert ourselves in these different roles as opposed to breaking those walls down a bit. like you say, we have some expertise, but I'm not, you know, suggesting that, Everyone just go off and do whatever. Uh, that's abdicating our responsibility. But I'm saying the same thing you are saying, which is let's shift this a little bit so that they understand that they're in control of their own lives. We're there just to help them get there. That's all. And evaluation can be used not as a way to say, oh, uh, you did it, you didn't do it, that's it. It's more of a tool to help them get to where they want to go with these feedback mechanisms.
0: Right. Yeah. I, not not very well kept secret. Most of evaluation is actually pretty simple, averages, yes. percentages. Yeah. Right. It's yeah. not that's a right. big honkin' multivariate. Pe- people may not know big honkin' statistical analysis. Right. That that is that's not right. our. That's not the world that we live in. Certainly. That's right. That's the right. other that's thing that really resonated to me, um, and I love that you said what they can't do is give up because it's hard for anybody these days to not wanna give up. Now, I think we need to retreat. We need to take a break, maybe take a break from news or social media. I also, I. It also makes me very sad when people say, "Well, I don't even listen to the news anymore. I don't read the paper or whatever." I I think that's abdicating our responsibility too. But I, we all need to kind of take a break. But you're right. We can't. We can't give up. What choice do we have?
1: Yeah, yeah. And and the thing is, you know, uh, when I not to get into too much of the politics, but when the policies went in a different direction than I expected, let's put it that way. For the last, not for the Biden one, but the previous administration. Uh, I was shocked because I'd been traveling and I thought I'd saw the debates and I thought it was pretty obvious who's going to win, not going to win. Um, and I was completely wrong. Um, and I think the point of that in relation to our conversation is that we can't uh, uh, stay in our bubble, in our echo chamber. And, you know, just sort of like, oh, what was me type of thing that didn't work out and uh, being misled. I think without getting too political, we The way our society is structured with social media and everything else as we already know through cambridge analytica and the manipulation that we are the way in which we're all being manipulated in some fashion uh supposedly just for marketing but it's for marketing for not just merchandise it's for political views Mm -hmm. we have to sort of get out of our echo chambers of the places that we know we're hearing what we want to hear and listen to the things that we don't want to hear so at least we know what's going on so we have a better feel for uh because if there's any way we're going to come to some sort of some people don't hear it, compromise or at least dialogue we've got to hear the different conversations going on mm-hmm. uh, otherwise we're going to constantly be surprised and that doesn't matter which side you're on and 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 there's no if you get only caught up in our silos and retreat completely obviously you take a break because it's been pretty intense to say at least with the you know latest supreme court uh, rulings mm-hmm. uh, you know once again not to get too political but this is unbelievable time we're living in. You, you, you couldn't, Who could imagine things can be turned back so far in such a short period of time uh, politically? Once again, not to take sides per se. I don't want to get engaged in a big political argument, even though you can tell what my views are. It's more that I understand and appreciate from a societal perspective and anthropological perspective. Um, this is a, an incredible time of change. Now, having said that, usually that means it's a chance for opportunity. So, we can't just miss it and sort of sit back and be, you know, bemoan. This is when things happen, is when we have this is unheard of, this, this period that we're going through right now, literally in the last few months, never mind uh, what we've gone through in the last, you know, decade. I mean, and we've had worldwide changes, COVID, right? It brought us all together internationally. I work with folks in India. First thing we ask them is, how are you doing? Are you able to find oxygen? I mean, with, who conversations we'd never even think we'd have around the world. We all have the same kind of link. We're all this tiny uh, little speck, as it were. And this little tiny thing that's a virus that we can't even see could take us all out as a species, mm-hmm. right? That's, we live in a different world than we, we did such a short period of time ago. But the point is we still can't afford, because of that, to get just lost in these little silos uh, and, and, and echo chambers because we'll never be have a functional dialogue be able to move forward without it once again having said that i do understand you know when you get sort of knocked on the ground you've got to sort of get catch your breath and that is part of what i think has to happen so that people can then become hopefully resilient and that's what i look for to move forward right
0: yeah and uh, you know as someone who works in um, communities like you do we have. We have to figure out how to talk to each other. We have to help our communities figure out how to talk to each other. I have one of my coalitions have a tremendous blow up and I won't go into details. So as not to, uh, you know, to talk about their business on my podcast, but, um, I was thinking this morning, like, ah, I have to get better at anticipating, I mean, you know, we talk about conflict and coalitions and collaborations all the time, and uh, where where communities are going to struggle, but I think we got to get a little more concrete, like, here are some of the yep. issues, and yep. how are you going to be in go. community when you all don't agree? You can't just take pick up your toys and stay home, you know, go home because my religion says X or my religion says Y, or I don't have a religion, therefore what, or whatever your social issue is that you're fighting about. But it was really um, pretty devastating for this coalition. And, And like I said, I'm like, I'm really pondering today about what can I do as a community psychologist and evaluator to help my communities navigate these pitfalls.
1: And some of it is just literally bringing it back to empowerment evaluation, giving them uh, a tool. That's all it is. People said to me that I was going to fail in East Palo Alto. Stanford is about, I don't know, three miles away from East Palo Alto, very impoverished area, all sorts of social issues, et cetera. Uh, and I was working over there and they said, Dave, you're going to fail over there because it's such, they're so divisive. You know, the uh, Latinos, Latinx, they don't like the black folks. The black folks don't like Pacific Islanders, uh, you know. I went there. I said, you know what? I know I, I lived there for a little while as a student also, so I knew the community. Um, and I said, how many of us here want to work on improving the schools for our kids? Hands went up. Didn't matter if they're a Pacific Islander. Didn't matter if African-American. Didn't matter. If Latinx. Didn't matter. How about on security? It was a pretty dangerous area at the time yeah housing we couldn't get agreement so we didn't work on it you work on what you can get common denominators i mean the secret for empowerment evaluation is actually mutual self interest that's what it is
2: mm-hmm.
1: i just want you to put your self interest on the table everybody diverse back all whatever your back and we'll find the common denominators those are the things that we can work on right that's it right and that's what that's what that's what i like about sounds simplistic but once again with a three-step process, I'm helping uh, as many people as I can get from different walks of life. I have them come in there, it can be clergy, it could be, you know, uh, political activists them, themselves, I have administrators, I have, uh, you know, shopkeepers, you name it, I've got them there. And I ask them, will you tell me what the mission is, what you're trying to accomplish for community? And then for Taking Stock, everyone has a chance to put in a rating of one, I'm being terrible, one, uh, 10, the perfect, I mean, the pit, uh, per- 10, perfect, one, the pits. And that way you have differences of opinion all there, put on the same page. And that's why I love having the diverse group together because I can ask why someone gave it a three and thought communication was horrendous or why someone thought it was not. And they have to listen to each other mm-hmm. and then explain why it's so terrible. Well, we give it a three because we never have agendas for anything we're doing. We have overlapping me. Okay, I already know then for our plans for the future, we want to improve communication and I want... I could come up with a million brilliant things on what to have for kiosks on the net or whatever. But I heard we don't have agendas, so we should now have agendas as one of our strategies. I tie it to the evidence back again. We should not have overlapping means, so we should monitor that. The key is I love the process, obviously, of having as many people from diverse backgrounds in the community together. And people, by the way, you have had this too, I'm sure. People say they don't invite so-and-so. They're such a pain in the neck and they're so negative. And I say, oh, no, yes. that's not. No. <laughs> yeah, they always, they always, they always, and I say, because they'll say the director's corrupt. And I say, I want them. Now they've just blasted through the ceiling. Now people who thought it was too dangerous talking about staffing or this, is like, oh yeah, that's a piece of cake. It's nothing compared to what he said. That So the more inclusive, the better. Also those people, as you know, are the people that will undermine you if you don't include them. And then the other part of it is they're often, uh, how should I say, begin to hyperbole and exaggerate because they haven't been listened to. And when you get past the surface, sometimes it's personality, yes, very often. But often it can be for sexist reasons, ageist reasons, all sorts of reasons that have marginalized them. They've felt they have to become extreme and crazy sounding. And if you pull them back in, so then recognize that they have something to contribute but they will be averaged in with the rest of the group. Then they get their voice heard, but that doesn't mean they take over just because they're charismatic, dynamic, or you know, extreme in their, in their views. So um, a lot of the process that I developed with empowerment evaluation sort of responds to what you're talking about in that it, it basically not just invites, but it almost demands participation and people getting their voice heard from very different points of view. And I, I guess one of the reasons I like it even more now is that I'm really concerned about that not being the case in our society. And that's the whole silo thing. Mm-hmm. And that's the whole thing with echo chambers and all that is mm-hmm. that I'm not saying that shouldn't exist. It can exist, but there has to be opportunities. And that's what empowerment vibration can do for a dialogue across the board of different viewpoints in a way that, yes, gets... Look, I'm not saying any of this is like, simple or and I don't want to give anyone the impression that it's just calm and easy. People scream, they get upset with some of these things, but they're in steps. So once you're done with this, you move into the next and then the next. Now, here's just a quick story. I don't I know we don't have a lot of time, but I want to share this with you just to show I I am, as you already noticed from our conversation, from my experience and from you know, your your knowledge of my background, I'm very goal-oriented. I like to get things done. Uh, and so I want to get through one step, step, second, second, third. When I was in a township, this is some years ago, um, and I'm going through mission, uh, and I'm into the taking stock. What do you think is going on? You know, the community. I'm dealing with substance um, issues, and we're dealing with um, um, uh, hypertension, uh, a lot of health issues. Anyway, uh, bottom line is a variety of problems in, in the community. They they don't have enough, you know, water, food, et cetera. It's very, very, very basic but important things, and. I'm thinking, wow, we're making some real inroads here. And keep in mind, this is in a Mondavian church. We're not allowed to have sex and all this other sort of stuff as part of the religion, but they let us use the the, the thing because it's only building big enough for this size community. And I'm getting through to as a coach to the middle part of it. I'm like really impressed. It's moving along. And then this lady yells, "I don't believe in any of this stuff." I am thinking, oh my gosh, this is like a disaster, <laughs> right? That's like, you know, in the middle of my, you know, workshop, and I'm thousands of miles away from home, you know, and I thought it was moving along nicely, right? You know, anyway, so even before I get a chance to say one word, this other lady comes up, oh, this is for a program for a, a program for a teenage pregnancy prevention program is what we were focusing on at the time. Uh, and she, and she screams, I don't believe in any of this stuff, you know, So and um but it had ramifications for other programs, something like that. So it's pretty important that we're dealing with this. The other woman comes up, taps her on the shoulder and says, the reason that we have to deal with this uh, and that it's important is because your daughter is pregnant. I'm going, oh my, in the middle of my workshop, <laughs> it's like, oh, pandemonium. I mean, if you ever, you know, if you study, you have, you know, you have the anger, you have denial. Yeah, I mean, you know, all the stages that we study. Yeah, I, I just- I within 10 minutes, all of it. It's I like, just had a flash
0: to Jerry Springer. The old Jerry Springer. Yeah, what did you- yeah. Do you have it a good was, poker face?
1: Like, it was like that. I was shocked. I was, I, I couldn't, I, I barely had a poker face. I was just like, I didn't have time to react. I was like, holy cow. And it's, it's just getting worse. So anyway, so here's why I'm really dumb. Though. I, You know, I make a lot of mistakes and I try to share as many as I can. This is the only one I can think of at the moment that's really appropriate. As I think, you know, like the the Star Trek kind of thing, uh, Vulcan kind of approach, uh, where um, uh, for the good of the many versus the few, I say, why don't the two of you go off and talk about this privately, because this is very personal, very overwhelming, this is dumb that I can think of, but it made sense at the time, right? So I'm continuing with the group and we're going almost into plans for the future. I'm like, wow, I didn't say anything about the thing. Oh, I'm so proud of myself. I'm so good. You know, I'm a good facilitator. I got that thing taken care of. And they start wandering back in very slowly, very calm, sitting down again. And I'm thinking, wow, that worked. That was pretty cool. Sure enough, I get to start, just to start, the plan for the future part of it, you know, just trying to find what goals, where do you want to go for the future? I'm so proud I still don't believe in it. She yells out, right, any of this stuff. I'm thinking, okay, why don't we just stop? And I say, okay, how many of you want, if I gave you a choice of like a million um or a yacht or, um, I don't know, a teenage pregnancy prevention program, how many of you would want that? No, no hands? Not even one? Let, let me rephrase it. How many of us do not want, would never want to have, but think we might need a teenage pregnancy prevention program. It goes, oh, I get it. My point in the story is that even though I'm very linear, let's go mission, taking stock, plan for the future, I realize in real life, you sometimes have to make detours. If she had that concern, you know most of the people had that concern mm. and that it should have been raised and I should have listened and I was not listening sufficiently. That's why I blew up mm. in that way. Once I took a detour, we dialogued about it, talked about it, and came to a reasonable understanding of what this is about and why, were we able to all together move forward into the plant? I I didn't stop. Once again, I'd like to have three steps so that once we blow up or something happens, okay, yeah, we took a detour. It took a lot longer than I anticipated for that part of it. And then we, you know what? Now we're going to plan for the future. So my point in the story is that I am very linear. I do like mission, taking stock, plan the future, and let's move on. I, time is important to me because I know too much time is going to buy uh, with injustice. right? And we can't afford to keep it going at such a slow pace. So that's part of my motivation, not just my personality, And I've seen too much that's wrong and should not continue as far as social justice issues. Anyway, but at the same time, I have learned that sometimes you have to stop,
2: mm-hmm. take
1: a detour, listen in a different way, re-strategize, come up with different strategies for the same goal, and then you don't stop. You then get back on track.
0: Right. So they didn't want it, but they needed it.
1: That's it. That's it. That's it. Once you do that, then you're respecting the religious background also. That I I didn't take into consideration sufficiently. I, I knew it was important. I didn't know it was that important. And that it, even the sound of a teenage pregnancy not supposed to be even having sex rubbed everyone the wrong way and sure enough so much so that one person at least had to speak out and of course it would be the person who of course was a kid that she didn't even know was pregnant until that session It's like the timing was like perfect in a way right it's like we we're talking about earlier sometimes these terrible things that happen in life are perfect opportunities mm-hmm. for change if yeah. you seize them and know how to work with them instead of letting them paralyze you.
0: Uh, I've I've uh, evaluated a couple of teen pregnancy prevention programs in my life, and I've lived in the South all my life. Oh, so wow. uh, you understand? Our, our teens don't have sex here either, right? <laughs> exactly. So so oftentimes we're not allowed to talk about certain things or. Yes. To teach uh, certain things yeah. related to t- so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take that with me but I'm gonna I want I'm I wanna um, let you get on because I know you're really busy but I gotta ask you the question I ask all my guests so when you look to the future what community possibilities do you see?
1: I, I see a lot. I see I see for the future more collaborative community-driven um, constellations. I see you know, foundations working to support uh, folks uh, based on community uh, folks' views of their needs. Uh, I see community folks taking more responsibility for their own futures. I see evaluators letting them go a little bit more and supporting community members as they learn to monitor their progress and evaluate their own performance in pursuit of their dreams.
0: I love it. I love it. from From your lips. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> we hope. We hope, but I, 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 I do, I do believe that uh, this constellation that I'm talking about is possible. um It's almost inevitable, quite frankly, and not always for good reasons. Because so much is going wrong, I think people are going to reach a point, partially out of desperation, partially out of that work world not working right? Well, the world is not working right, and that it's time that we get together to make these kinds of changes for all of our benefit, even though we have very different reasons and we live in different kind of worlds, as it were, uh, so that we can continue to exist. I mean, if anything has taught us that, it's COVID. Mm -hmm. No matter whether you're rich or poor, black or white, you know what? We as a species could be wiped out. So when you have that recognition, it's a little easier to get your head around, wrap your head around climate issues, large issues that we haven't really tackled enough because it's hard to get your head around. You realize, no, we, we lived a global experience that's very real. And you know what? We are slowly but surely moving forward out of that. Never, not that it'll ever end, there'll always be something out there, of course, but we are learning that we have adapted once again, one of our special skills, the human beings, And that this is one of them, that we can all, at one point or another, do some fashion of what I'm talking about, of working together. That kind of change in the stars, as it were, of what we're dreaming for.
0: Yeah. Well, this has been a lovely, beautiful, inspiring conversation. Thank you so, so much. I appreciate you so much and the gift that you are. Um, How can people get in touch with you?
1: Just email me. Fetterman associates at gmail.com or look at my web pages, Dr. David uh, whatever way you can reach me, get a hold of me and I sometimes take a couple of days I'd be you know honest, I get overwhelmed I have a lot of projects going, but I always try to get back to everybody. So sometimes you can get through me through of course um, LinkedIn also and you know uh, Facebook, but email simple email is usually the easiest way to get on the list so I can make sure I respond to people who are in a systematic fashion.
0: Awesome. Thank you. You just gave me some encouragement that I needed. Don't, don't give up.
1: Way to go. That's fantastic.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure just chatting with you again. It's really nice, you know, to be able to at least have some maintain that contact. That's great. Thanks.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode of Community Possibilities. If you liked what you heard, would you be so kind to like and share this episode? I would appreciate it so much. I also wanted to let you know I've been doing some updating on our resources page. So if you go on over to communityevaluationsolutions.com forward slash resources, you're going to, of course, see the link to the podcast. You'll also see a link to our free mini course, Use Data to Help Tell Your Story. You're going to see powerful evidence, our framework for harnessing social change. And you're also going to see a new tool that we're rolling out the Nonprofit Evaluation Capacity Self Assessment. It's something I developed years ago, and now I'm making it more widely available. So I hope you will go on over to communityevaluationsolutions.com forward slash resources and check out some of our free tools. Thanks, everyone, and we'll see you here next time.